0: So, welcome to this week's episode of uh, Pop Culture Movies from
1: 1979. Um, this week, this week we're going to be
0: looking at. this week we're going to be looking at Chris Petit's Radio One. It's his 1979 scrapbook of what was cool in the cultural landscape of 1979.
1: Yeah, I think a scrapbook is a pretty good way of summing it up. Actually, it, it definitely has that that feel. You know, it's. It's not somebody that's set out to make a groundbreaking piece of cinema. It's more them just saying, you know, it's like a mission statement, isn't it? It's like these are all the things that are cool. This is the direction that culture should be heading in, and that's all I've got to say on the matter. Mm. I, I thought that was you know that's definitely one of its kind of charms i think you know 40 years later
0: that that was quite kind of a snide sarcastic introduction i should say from the off that i absolutely adore this film i think it's absolutely concentrated brilliance
1: what's your what's your history when when how many times have you seen it what's
0: this is the first time i've seen it <laughs> okay
1: wow all right, fair enough. But,
0: I mean, I'll, I'll get into this a bit more later on, but I've always been aware of it and it's kind of been kicking around in the background and I've read, it's always turned up in things that I've read and I've read a lot about it. Yeah, okay. Um, and I, I don't know if I ever had it on tape, but I picked it up on DVD when the BFI brought it out some 10, 11 years ago. And I kind of started watching it and I was too sleepy for it. So I stopped after about 15 minutes. And then as with so many films in this series, it just kind of sat on the shelf until you picked it out to do this podcast and then i watched it um, and i'll explain the experience of watching it later on but yeah this is my first and second time of watching it how about you how come how come you chose it
1: well it's exactly the same thing it's been kicking around in my kind of subconscious for you know years it like you say it pops up in you know film books uh, about british cinema and i saw it on the bfi player listing and i was like god maybe i should just watch this now but i needed to a little bit more motivation so I flagged it up to you um, and so I think we both kind of motivated each other to watch it
0: I mean it may be that my memory's failing and I have I did see it in the 90s because I used to know a guy from university who was um, a lot older than me and he had very 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 good taste and he would introduce me to to films and books that that turned out to be great and I cannot understand how he didn't make me watch this because I know this is absolutely in his wheelhouse He he's yeah, sure. totally into this he would have lived he was the same age, I think, as as the protagonist at the time in seventy nine. Oh yeah, okay. And would totally have lived and experienced this film, but I, I'm sure I haven't seen it until now. Coming to this, particularly when you start doing background research on it, you realise just how much writing there is and how much thinking has been done about this.
1: It's still quite niche, though, isn't it? It's by no means a kind of popular movie. It doesn't really turn up in many lists unless you get to like top 100
0: but the people who like it have written about it a lot and have written in Mm. depth and what i want to flag up at the front is that i don't anticipate anything i'm about to say will have anything like that depth i can only give you half-baked mediocre slightly (laughs) pretentious opinions on it and shane's you know more focused versions Mm -hmm. thereof and if you want some if you want some depth on this we'll we'll give you a load of links at the bottom and you can go to those because there is some very very good writing on this yeah I think
1: what what we're bringing is the um you know having neither of us having seen it before we're we're basically two middle aged virgins looking, looking at this film for the first time
0: so i I know of chris Petit basically i i read Ian Sinclair books, and Ian Sinclair and Chris Petit are kind of collaborators and friends and Ian Sinclair's written a lot about chris Petit's work, and there's a chapter in his book lights out for the territory which is like a a potted guide to british filmmakers that ian sinclair likes and admires uh and there's a section on radio on and and chris Petit's subsequent films there ian sinclair wrote um one of the bfi modern classics books about david cronenberg's crash oh yeah okay but he used it kind of half used it as an excuse to go into the unfilmed chris Petit version that that almost got made oh really um, and to rhapsodize about that um
1: a a digression
0: yeah And I think he mentioned he must have mentioned Petit's novel Robinson, which I subsequently read, and I read his book The Hard Shoulder. And I think I gave you Robinson as well, didn't I? Yeah,
1: you did. Yeah, that's that's the only uh, reference I have for Chris Petit is Robinson, which I loved. You know, mm-hmm. it was mad novel about an editor just caught in the kind of wake of a mental director. You know, drifting in in and out of pornography. It just felt like this kind of really seedy Soho. 70s 80s book i
0: really liked it and petite we should go into his background but he he was the film editor of time out in the late 70s and as such had opportunities to meet filmmakers and stuff and he had this kind of loose idea for what became radio on kicking around in his in his head so he met vin vendors and showed him the script and got vendors backing and involvement to the tune of about thirty thousand pounds and he also when he was lining up the music choices for the film he um Sort of got a bit of music journalism work through Melody Maker and got to meet Kraftwerk Yeah, that's right. um, And got got their involvement with a, a few songs. But yeah, through through his ability to make connections as film editor at Time Out, he got vendors on board and he got uh, vendors, lighting cameraman uh, Martin Schaefer. Uh, he got Lisa Kreutzer involved as an actress, um, mm-hmm. and through one of the kind of now non-existent but then fairly common kind of like open door filmmaker policies at the bfi at the time he got like an overall budget of eighty thousand pounds of which 30 came from road movies and made this without any rigorous idea of what it was going to be but it just seems instinctively to come together absolutely brilliantly
1: yeah it it definitely drifts doesn't it Mm. i think i have to say sitting down to watch it i was kind of ready for i don't know an epiphany you know a british cinema epiphany something really kind of soul shaking and i love the first half and then it just sort of like drifts for the back end and by the time it's finished i was like okay <laughs> wow what what was that you know I, re- I really kind of uh i was left bemused i think but you know you know, enjoyably so but yeah it was uh, it is a, a strangely constructed film and I, I, you know i think it's kind of dated well uh the sort of noir black and white photography has helped it become like a stylized bubble but yeah I, I, yeah i just found it I don't know if some of the ideas have aged as well.
0: For me, that's where it's kind of like it's gone beyond kind of dating or aging. It's just, it's just one of those immaculate time capsule films. Yeah, sure. There's this idea that um, Brian Eno has of of the, you know, we call this a scrapbook as, as if it's kind of like, you know, things that have been stolen magpie fashion and put together. But I think, I think what it shows is that because i you know I was reading a, a petite interview this morning and he he says that he hadn 't read any j g. Ballard at the time it's just that his ideas of kind of you know the motorway and the landscape yeah zeitgeist and, isn't you it? Know, Brian Eno calls it the senius, where everyone's kind of having very similar ideas at the same time and they sort of coalesce into what becomes the cultural landscape or the mm-hmm. new the new ideas. I think alan moore has a similar idea about kind of idea space oh, yeah, okay. kind of puncturing reality for for different people at the same time and i think this is a good example of that these are these are the things that were in the air and you know the the cultural result of them is you know on one hand you've got joy division which is which is very much the same sort of thing it's like kind of like black and white slightly modernist angular um existential mm-hmm. um bleak austere <laughs> yeah. with you know cultural nods to a bit of jg ballard and chris Petit's case because he's more of a film background so you've got a lot of them vendors in here a lot of, yeah, of contemporary yeah. german filmmaking um and the kind of ideas that vendors collaborate you know the writer peter peter hanker forgive me if that pronunciation's wrong but yeah he's kind of the the writer of german existential novels who vendors worked with on i think it was goalie's anxiety at the penalty kick men and machines and the interaction thereof and craft work and all, all of these things are kind of happening at the same time and and this film is kind of one of those percolations of all those things
1: Well, i was researching i looked on timeout just to see what what they uh, thought of it obviously him being an ex timeout critic and they're really gushing it says uh, with an acute sense of transformative hybrid landscapes as equal players in the film's unfolding sensibility radio on sits quite literally on the precipice between a failing post-war reality and the coming abyss of thatcherism more relevant than ever Petit's essay on existential inquiry in an english setting remains critical viewing
0: i wonder when that was written
1: uh i think like last year or the year before it was when they did their 100 british films that you must see
0: oh okay I wonder what the contemporary review was for the t- from the time. And I'd like to know who the film editor at Time Out was at the point when this was released. Because, um, you know, Jeff Andrew, who was the film editor throughout a lot of the 90s, he reviewed that Ian Sinclair book on Crash, Insight and Sound, when it came out. And he, he was just like, this is really insufferable. <laughs> I really wish he'd written a book about the film rather than just banging on yet again about his chum Chris Petit. So yeah, so I think it's it's kind of gone beyond being dated and it's just this kind of timeless snapshot of things that were going on in people's heads.
1: I think Chris Petit said that uh, it was the year of the portable cassette, which marked the start of being able to create one's own soundtrack and play them whilst driving windscreen as cinema. I thought <laughs> that was <laughs> that was quite sort of it's it's timely, isn't it? Because we're you know, we're plugged into music all the time now, mm-hmm. but yeah just this idea that wow you could play music in the car you know choose it you could dictate the music that you're listening to instead of just you know whatever's coming through the antenna
0: it is i mean obviously for people of a certain age and i guess it does kind of have historical value and there's there's it does capture a lot of things that were still kind of hanging on yeah yeah but it's gone forever now and there's so many things like that in this film like you know uh, the petrol pumps at the at the station and um, buildings that aren't there and and customs that that are extinct now the fact that Robert the lead character is able to chuck his tins away coolly is <laughs> yeah. His, the,
1: a couple of times when he's littering I'm like oh come on yeah, exactly
0: <laughs> it, it does have that value as well and I guess there's there's a there's a point in it where early on in the film I think he was just driving back from the laundrette and he parks across the road from the Camden Plaza in the cinema yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's just parking his car there I, I mean I don't know if it was possible back then or if it's just kind of sleight of hand but could you ever park your car outside Camden Tube?
1: I would say my, um, my granddad was from Ealing, uh, West London. And after the war, he moved out to Colchester. So whenever he took us on family trips to go and see his mum, who's still in Ealing, we used to just drive straight through the centre of London. And it was like, you know, I mean, this was made at the same time as we were driving through 1979, 1980. And it was like that. It was, you felt, just felt like Moses, you know, there was no traffic, you just cruise through the city and it parked up. I think my favourite thing about the um the film was that it's kind of this idea of looking towards European cinema and that, you know, that would be a better path for British cinema to take as a as a model, you know, as a business model and as a cultural model, instead of the American model, which is, you know, essentially what's happened. You know, there aren't many British films that seem to have a European sensibility. I think there's a few that maybe nod to the influence, but you know, nothing that is made in that style anymore.
0: Well, not in the mainstream. I'd I'd say there's still uh, within the BFI. I mean, I know that the BFI like to fund hits. But they do use a lot of the money they make from the hits and a lot of their funding to make a lot of kind of smaller films that they know and the world knows aren't ever going to get anywhere commercially. But they still get made, and a lot of those do have like a a European influence.
1: Have you seen anything else that Chris Petit has done? Because I looked on IMDb; he's got a fairly kind of long filmography. He's done you know four or five other features.
0: Uh, I haven't seen any of his other films. I mean, from the description that. Ian Sinclair, a lot, a lot of the early ones are sort of kind of quite compromised. Chinese boxes always looked sort of interesting, but I kind of get the feeling it would be one of those sort of 80s hodgepodge type movies that, mm. that kind of falls between two stools, tries to be one thing. I'm judging it without having even seen yeah. it. But it doesn't look particularly enticing. It is on DVD, but I'm not going to go out and buy it. If If there's a way to watch it, sort of without having to make too much effort, I would. But... <laughs> There's a lot of other interesting people connected to this. Produced by Keith Griffiths, who's become in subsequent years a kind of a titan of UK independent film. Martin Schaefer, Robbie Muller's camera operator, who must have impressed Vendors after this, because he subsequently got to be DP on um, Vendors Lightning Over Water. And The State of Things, which is an amazingly photographed film.
1: Yeah, I must say, I love the photography in this. It's really kind of lush black and white you know it doesn't look like anything else in in a nice way you know it sort of has I don't know there's like a kind of naivety to it the photography you know it's not trying to emulate anything it's just capturing that dark space you know the,
0: mm.
1: i've never thought of bristol as a kind of particularly uh noirish location but there's there's something about the photography that makes it
0: it's really evocative isn't it
1: yeah it feels like another world it, it's very good at kind of creating and capturing this sort of i think because it's black and white you don't get the the filth of england at that time you know and it avoids any of the sort of green and pleasant land sprawling kind of landscapes that you might get
0: the, the thing that that struck me when I was watching it because it's I mean, it's not murky in any way, but it's very, very kind of inky mm. and, and the blacks are very, very black. It has that timeless quality of still photography from anywhere in the 20th century. Yeah, sure. There's, there's scenes like the nighttime scenes in the factory where Robert works, like the shots of the conveyor belt. You know, you've got those beautiful yeah, yeah. halos on the strong lights and then the blacks are so dark. and then mm. yeah, It's lovely. It's got those just beautiful kind of still photography tableau feel.
1: Yeah, I love how kind of incongruous it is because he's driving an old car and the black and white photography and those kind of deco buildings you know you really are sort of a bit a bit kind of lost in in the sort of london tapestry aren't you i think it's really good at at, at evoking that
0: i looked up anthony sloman who is the editor He's had a very interesting and varied career.
1: Yeah, I know. Who's the assistant editor on Cross of Iron, apparently. Yeah,
0: and he's been the sound editor on, like, major films. But then you've also got him as a director of, like, kind of softcore porn movies in the early 70s.
1: And he's a historian as well, isn't he? (laughs) Should
0: we have a quick look at the cast?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's do it.
0: Has David Beams been in anything else that you've seen?
1: No, I don't think so. I was scouring the imdb again just going i must have seen him in something since you know to have a starring role like this you'd think it would be uh, at least a passport to another strong supporting role around the, the period but he just kind of it doesn't get any traction yeah he's really got that um the samurai kind of stoicism hasn't he where <laughs> Even, you know, the death of his brother and, you know, finding out that he may have been uh, involved in some really kind of sex trafficking porno business that it doesn't really face him. And, you know, he's kind of quite nonplussed about it as mm. well. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think he's, yeah, he's got a good kind of look on the screen, hasn't he? he has a very weird haircut in the first act, which he goes from looking really cool to looking quite square. And I couldn't work out why he'd done it until. We see later on in the film him standing beside a slide of his brother projected on a wall and he looks exactly like him. You know, he's wearing the same clothes and he's had the same haircut as his brother. And yeah, just those strange little details that make it quite compelling.
0: Sandy Ratcliffe as Kathy, his, yeah. his brother's girlfriend. Sandy Ratcliffe's a funny one. She, I know that her, her defining role is Sue in EastEnders.
1: Sue in EastEnders, yeah.
0: But I never, I never, ever think of that. And I I used to watch EastEnders like right the way through from 85 to 90. I never connect Sandy Ratcliffe with that role. I always think of her in that early Ken Loach movie, um, Family Life. Oh, I've never seen it. She's so good in that. And then she's got a little tiny role in that Michael Moorcock adaptation final program. So I was quite pleased to see her in this doing something else with some edge. Sue Jones-Davis as the girl... I don't know if she lives in Robert's flat or Robert lives in hers or if they live together or if he's just visiting. Did you recognise her? No, not at all. She played Judith in The Life of Brian. Oh, hi, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I went down a sort of Wikipedia page and she was married to Chris Langham, disgraced former comedian Chris Langham at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she was also mayor of Aberystwyth from 2008 to 2009. Wow. <laughs> That's full life. Lisa Kreutzer as Ingrid sort of reprising the same role as alice in the cities really
1: yeah we didn't we Menders said have you got a part for lisa and chris petite apparently was just like well maybe she could <laughs> pick up where she left off in alice in the cities and that, that's it yeah she's like looking for a little girl called alice who's with her father after you know the mother abandoned her i suppose yeah yeah, yeah. it's a shame really didn't d- do more with her because she's brilliant
0: i think she's got just enough to do in it she's perfect i mean there's what's interesting about it is there's there's, there's, there's no drama in this nothing happens there are no relationships yeah, there's no melodrama is there yeah there's, no, there's yeah. nothing at all so she's there and she's a presence in the film and in his life but nothing's going to change his lack of <laughs> of action yeah, he's, and, and he's got no narrative has he so nothing's no, gonna...
1: he's, he's unaffected by anybody else's and his own situation really just kind of kind of stepping through the space
0: there's a credit in here for um the actress Tilly Vosberg, who was fantastic in a few years later in Mike Lee's um, Meantime. Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, I have, but I can't think who she was in this.
0: She was the woman who lived on the young woman who lived on the same estate, who sort of had a bit of a crush on the Tim Roth character.
1: No, no, in this. Oh, in this? in this. Well,
0: that's it. I I can't see her in this. Maybe she's in the background in the pub or something. Mm. But she's got a credit, but I just can't perceive where she is
1: uh talking of random people the um you know the little boy that he talks to uh, at the hot dog stand yeah uh, he's credited as paul hollywood to the um the, <laughs> the famous celebrity baker apparently it's the same guy it doesn't look anything like him right. But when you follow the links it all joins together but yeah okay. i just i found that really hard to swallow
0: i was very very happy to see the woman who bullies him when he's drunk in the pub at the end in bristol <laughs> yeah, knocks yeah. him off his stool is uh um, yeah kim tailforth she's Gillian tailforth's sister but around about this time she she had one of the biggest sort of female supporting roles in the knowledge have you seen that
1: no no oh, you talked about this before
0: fantastic it's about somebody who's learning the knowledge to become a london cabbie yeah. and she's the kind of supportive stroke nagging girlfriend in it um and she's brilliant she's very funny oh, right, okay. so I was always happy to see her on screen
1: the only other note i had was andrew byatt who was the uh, Scottish deserter from the army that we meet about halfway through the film. And uh, he um, set up the actor's cut in Edinburgh, which is, you know, basically a stage school. But he was the hotel manager in succession when they had uh, yes. their Glaswegian Glass- <laughs> wedding. Yeah. yeah, Well, I guess last but by no means least is uh, Sting's cameo, playing the character just like Eddie.
0: I, I don't hate Sting as much as... Th- the world at large of my generation seemed to... I didn't really like him in this very much.
1: Oh, I thought he was really good in this. Because so, yeah. I'd seen... That Chris Petit said he didn't like the sequence. And he said the two Martins, the um, sound recordist and the cameraman, both talked him into letting Sting do a little bit of singing. And I thought it was a really nice sort of end to the uh, the first half of the film. It just kind of closes out with with Sting strumming. I thought it was really nice. I thought he was quite effortless and charming
0: i liked what the scene was saying i like the fact that these kind of rock and roll things just seem to be fading away now till they're just like clippings on the on the side of a caravan door that this yeah, yeah. that this loner's just playing to he himself he plays
1: a little bit of craft work doesn't he on the car's uh, cassette player and switches it straight <laughs> off like it's it's an anathema to his ears he's like what is that i never really um tied three steps to heaven to bowie's queen bitch either but you, you can hear it can't you straight
0: away yeah. So this is often described as a road movie, but I think that's a bit misleading.
1: Yeah, man, it's hardly any road stuff in there. And every time he kind of pulls onto the motorway, you get 30 seconds of driving and then he pulls off into a service station or something yeah. else. So yeah, it's not really a road movie.
0: And it's, you know, not even loosely speaking, there, there is a journey. There's a couple of journeys to and from work, which is hardly road movie stuff. And there is yeah. a, a journey to Bristol, yeah. and that's it but my notes here i've got it's kind of like it kind of sets out its stall early on when you when you have the opening shot which kind of holds on that long craftwork quote. quote it's, it's sort of meditation on men and machines because the lead character is is constantly using tapes and records and traveling in vehicles and traveling in technology and he kind of lives isolated in this kind of artificial world of his own making even his choice of job kind of isolates him working at night listening to records on his own yeah. Yeah, um, that's
1: quite a strange job, isn't it he's is he a Dj you know like you have hospital DJs is yeah. he a Dj for it seems like a couple of factories on an industrial estate and he plays music throughout the night to keep them entertained
0: yeah oddly wikipedia has like a one paragraph summary of this movie and one of the things it flags up quite prominently at the end is that his role as a dj is quite similar to the i think it was like united radio that was something that the united biscuits factories used to have they used to actually have their own in-house dj oh yeah
1: yeah but he works at a biscuit factory doesn't he I you couldn't tell. Some yeah, there's some, definitely some biscuits. It looks, because <laughs> I,
0: I worked in an ice cream factory for, for a summer once, and it looked very, very similar to that, like, you know, separating out the biscuits on the conveyor belt yeah, yeah. as it comes by. But then I guess he must have been in an industrial state because when he came out um, to his car, you could see a gillette sign quite prominently in the backgrounds mm-hmm. one way of looking at the movie is is that it's you know it is a meditation on on man and technology and where the gray areas in between you know where where you're using this technology how, how it can affect you and how you live within that world um it's also i i find it quite moving in places it's just the melancholy of the whole thing it's about like night, nighttime and early morning and disconnection and you know being isolated from people yeah. and, and society even even the person that he seems to live with, they have virtually no communication at all. Between yeah, them.
1: that's it. I mean, he's he's definitely living a, a life that's contrary to it. Society is, isn't he? He's up all night. You know, he sleeps through the days. Kind of isolated and insular. His everything about his life just is is a little box that he kind of lives in. Robert is. He seems quite lethargic and quite bored by everything around him. It's not like he's stimulated and you know inspired by anything even i think even the music that he's playing as a dj he kind of doesn't listen to you know he takes his headphones off and is just kind of going through the mechanics of putting records on the turntable and pressing play you know that's that's it he's...
0: i never found him bored um i i found him distracted um I, he always seems he's disconnected i think but not totally disconnected not you know he's not like let's say philip winter at the beginning of alice in the cities who is clearly exhausted and disconnected yes, really. he does seem fairly curious but he's just not settling another way to look at it which certainly i think the film does itself is as a weird form of like music compilation album yeah or oddly enough well, maybe it's like an early form of of music video because, it, you know, at, at the beginning of the film, in the credits, you get the actors' names, and then you get the titles of the songs and the artists.
1: Yeah, it's like featuring the music of, and <laughs> yeah. then you have this long sort of ticker tape kind of list of everybody's music and the tracks that they're using. Yeah, it, it definitely eats up quite a bit of time right at the front of the film. But the music definitely drops away in the in the back half of the film as well. That's... When we see Sting, after that, you know, there's hardly any other music used. You know, it really is all loaded up at the front, of the soundtrack.
0: Yeah, but from that point on, he has to engage with people, so he does not. He doesn't get much time to spend on his own doing that, does he? Mm, yeah, exactly. You know, after that, he's he's talking to Kathy, or he's talking to um, Ingrid. So it's only kind of when he disappears off on his own at the end of the film that he gets any time to do that again. I wish I could find the interview. I'm sure that I read an interview with Petit where he said... That this wasn't actually music that he was listening to at the time. He wasn't actually into kind of like Berlin era Bowie or any of this sort of thing. He just used to listen to things like ABBA that were on the radio because <laughs> he really liked those harmonies.
1: It's all very cool, though, isn't it? The the music, you know, to use uh, the version of Bowie's Heroes at the beginning that has the the German lyrics. I just thought as it moves into that, you are like, oh, that's that's a nice touch, you know. it's we kind of, I think that opening sequence, I really loved where the camera's just roving around this apartment and looking at the details there's like a a, I don't know if it's supposed to be the dead brother's manifesto or his suicide note or what it's supposed to be but you know the camera just stops on that so we've got time to read it and drifts around the apartment I really yeah I just thought that was really nice nice stuff with that tune blasting all the way through it
0: it's interesting you flagged that up I just occurred to me maybe you know obviously we're not speaking in a literal sense but this film does seem to happen more inside his dead brother's head than it does in Robert's yeah because all these this quote from craftwork and the music that the craftwork cassettes that he sends to robert they all come from him these ideas you know he's he's the one who has the collection of slides of pornography and mm-hmm. stuff all these ideas that the film deals with are more to do with what the what the brother was feeling and thinking than than robert himself consciously yeah going through the film from start to finish, hopefully not too laboriously. One of the things that the film has many of is things that no longer exist. And the film opens up with a burst of radio tuning, which you just don't guess anymore. It does not exist. And we alight on David Bowie's Heroes Stroke Heldon and the credits typed on screen as per a telegram, which we don't have anymore.
1: (laughs) It's nice. I love the idea that all of this technology at the time was kind of really exciting and liberating and groundbreaking and now we're just so complacent with you know our technology you know this idea that we can do all of that on our phones and you know if our phone even dares to kind of reboot you know it drives us crazy like come on you know i need all of this now i think that that was their limitations and how inspiring that was at the time how much different how much change it seemed to represent
0: there's a list of actors and then as i said before there's a list of the bands and songs like a compilation album. Recently saw Gaspar Noé's Climax, which does the same thing, but it goes one better. It has all the band logos for all the bands who contribute to the soundtrack oh, really? in the oh, opening yeah. credits. Then we have this uh, long handheld shot going up the stairs of the flat in Bristol, as we'll find out later, um, and exploring various nooks and crannies. And it picks out a lot of reference points for the film. You've yeah, got I uh, love it. Patricia Highsmith's Ripley novels on, on the side. David Bowie's *Heroes* as it turns out, playing on um, on a, a Roberts radio, which only exists as a kind of DAB version of now. And then you have got the, the Kraftwerk quote on the wall, which I guess is worth quoting in full.
1: Do it. You have to do it in a robot voice, though. We are the children of
0: Fritz Lang and Werner von Braun. We are the link between the 20s and the 80s. All change in society passes through a sympathetic collaboration with tape recorders, synthesizers, and telephones. Our reality is an electronic reality. A lot of the furniture in the flat is is now defunct furniture, things that were left over from previous decades that we as young people may have come across as children but just don't exist anymore at all.
1: Are you talking about things like that big um, plastic centerpiece in the bathroom? Yeah. Which, you know, has the shelves and the mirrors and the sink all kind of bonded into one huge unit thing. yeah.
0: Kitchen cupboards that were all bonded together, you know, the lower and, and upper sections with a cooker built in and all of that. He's also got the rickety and very dangerous original sash windows you know like a, a fifth floor flat yeah sure the guillotine and there's there's stuff like that that pops up later in the film you know the old gt petrol pumps um the rock and roll that sting is singing to himself is is fading into oblivion you know apart from perhaps shaken stevens and Shawadi waddy like rock and roll is has hasn't really lived you know it's it's just a, a an, anachronistic well,
1: those two references are pretty dated yeah there's there is no sort of 21st century rock and rollers are there?
0: and then you, we pass the brother in the bath who we don't realize is dead until later in the film and then we have the title shot which is one of the so cool, isn't it? one of the best things i've ever seen it's yeah. the fact that you hold on it for so long you get a feel of the time and place and you manage to embed the title of your film into that time and place yeah, yeah, is yeah. just brilliant
1: and it's um Bristol Hippodrome, isn't it? I think it's yeah it's easy to think it's London, but yeah, it's and that ties in nicely with the narrative. They talk about Eddie Cochran halfway through the film and who'd just performed at Bristol Hippodrome when he died and yeah, this I don't know. Bristol seems to have as equal standing as London in terms of the you know the fil- the filmmakers views of it as a city.
0: So we have a series of establishing scenes after that where we get to meet Robert um and his life. Uh we open with him outside a laundrette waiting for his friend's laundry.
1: It's quite cool because like everything in it looks really sort of iconic and stylish and then you realize oh, he's just waiting for the tumble dryer to finish so he's nipped out to the car to open some post and listen to a tape.
0: His brother sent him an envelope of craftwork cassette tapes uh which were I mean just seeing purchased cassette tapes was a, a rush of nostalgia for me yeah for sure I mean I used to buy cassette tapes when I only had a tape deck when I was eight years old which is about back then just seeing that the, the packaging where they didn't even try to adapt the album cover to a rectangle they just put the album cover at the bottom and then, and then the title at the top
1: yeah, it's a little square isn't it yeah thumbnail. I'm
0: really surprised, I don't know if it was beyond their technical means, that they didn't include the the little kind of audio test sound that used to be at the beginning of each cassette tape. You know, like little bu- 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 noise it used to make.
1: Oh, I had hundreds of tapes, I don't ever remember that. Maybe it was just one of those things that never registered. Oh. You're, you're more technical than I am.
0: Um, and then he Drives home and as I said before, he manages to park outside Camden Town Tube.
1: But well, there's a, a nice bit where he um he puts in the craftwork tape and he listens to a little bit of radioactive and then he switches it off and switches the wipers on and <laughs> listens to the wipers and then switches it off again. I just thought that was really nice. He was like, "What does this sound like?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, it sounds like the wipers."
0: He seems to live above no
1: above the cinema, the, yeah, the so Plaza
0: cool. Cinema. I mean, it was heartbreaking to see the Plaza Cinema again because I used to go to see films there a lot when I first came to London in the early 90s. It got um, brutally redeveloped in the mid-90s I remember hearing at the time it was kind of it was closed and there was obviously a lot of controversy about the development and and there was some toing and froing and it didn't look like it might necessarily go ahead but then the developers went in and just gutted it anyway so they wouldn't be able to kind of go back. Yeah. Still miss that cinema to this day. It was one of my, you know, when I came to London there was scores of cinemas to go to but that was that was the one I used to choose to see things at. He lives with a woman who is it his lover, his ex-lover, is it? I I'm wondering if she's you know, I might be reading too much into it, but there's this constant backdrop of reports of terrorism and then also of this pornography ring. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when he comes to visit her or comes home to the flat, she's watching three TVs at once in what looks like a reference to the, the man who fell to Earth. who's <laughs> yeah. another isolated alien in modern society. I'm wondering, is, is she a political criminal or, or a fugitive or a terrorist? Or? There's a
1: thing later on, isn't there, on the wall, which is uh, Free Astrid Prohl. Was the girl from Baden Meinhof, who uh, fled Germany and lived in Hackney for a little bit? She worked as a park ranger for the councils, and she worked at the uh, Lesney's toy factory. You know the cars, toy cars. Yeah, and that space is next to my kid's school now. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's probably this idea that there were—I don't know—I don't want to say like dissidents or terrorists, but anti-establishment countercultural figures were. You know, moving around underground, mm. maybe. And I think, yeah, she's she seems quite transient.
0: I wonder if that's something that's sort of hinted at there.
1: And she looks a little bit like Bob Dylan, which I thought was quite quite funny.
0: It's funny, um, how seventies terrorism is, or the backdrop of terrorism and political agitation is is part of the musical landscape, or how the two things sort of feed into each other. I'm thinking of like when I watched Olivier O'Shea's. Again, pronunciation, I, I never get to speak to people about movies, so I don't know how these things are pronounced. <laughs> you're talking about his Carlos the Jackal. Yeah, which mm. I thought was fantastic. But yes, I, excellent. when I first started watching it, like my ears were twitching. It's like, hang on a sec, the music that you're using as the backdrop for things that are happening in the early mid 70s is music from 1981, 82, 83, um, or, you know, possibly early in that. But it's definitely, it's like post-punk music, kind of harsh and austere and you know, with more edge, is being used as as the backdrop music, not diegetically, not within the film, but just as kind yeah, of, yeah. you know, as the music um, for things that are happening in the 70s because there's that kind of relationship between the two. It's kind of like edgy post-punk mm. music. Yeah, the overlap, yeah. It it feels more representative of terrorism and political agitation. So there's a snowy drive over the Westway, um, J.G. Ballard's beloved West way. Odd to learn that Petit hadn't actually read any Ballard at the time. Yeah,
1: it's mad, isn't it?
0: It's a really nice, uh, really nice bit we have, obviously, like through the windscreen. And then you get to see him um, working in the night shift, which is, I guess, just the absolute definition of an isolated job, DJing on the night shift in a factory. The amazing shots of the, the factory assembly lines and the atmosphere of the place.
1: I like it. Somebody's asked if he can play Help Me Make It Through the Night. And he says, well, here's something better and just plays a, t-
0: a totally different record. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely a hipster DJ, isn't he?
1: Yeah, he's a bit of a know it all.
0: Yeah. And then you get his loner time after work where he kind of stops off on the way home in the middle of the Goes night. From arcades. Yeah. Say. Playing video games in a looks like an arcade or a roadside cafe.
1: It's funny actually seeing that because I don't know. I think there's a temptation to look back on arcades of the 80s and get quite kind of Tron about it and how sort of cool and amazing they were but a lot of them were just sort of tagged onto cafes so here they just kind of smelt of like vinegar and cigarettes and just these sort of bloop bloop, bloop yeah. in the background of, of that kind of space.
0: Odd bit of geography where he seems to come off the west way and then turn off Euston Road and then park up and seem to be at <laughs> home again but the section where he gets home again and i put home in inverted commas and gets the call from his mother about his brother's death is one of those great bits of 70s filming that nobody really seems to do anymore.
1: You're talking Um, about this sort of long tracking shot and it's like crane up and the characters moving in the foreground and background. Yeah. It's really nice.
0: The thing that kind of originates from Antonioni movies and then you get it filtered through like Vin Vendors and and there's the famous one in Taxi Driver as well where Travis is on the phone pleading with Betsy to to Mm -hmm. give him a second chance and the camera just pans off to the corridor and ignores yeah, yeah. him. I mean, this is a, a great shot because um, the phone call happens, much of it's off screen and then the camera kind of pans around and finds him framed foreground with a window. And you got that, I don't know, it's just so wonderfully evocative of, of, again, that's...
1: It's elegant, isn't it? It's an elegant shot that yeah. ends with his girlfriend framed or non-girlfriend framed in the window opposite the court, in the, the across the courtyard.
0: But it's not just the fact that it's it's a beautifully framed shot, it's just there's something about urban living. You don't you don't really get those views anywhere other than in a city. You know, when you're sitting with somebody at a window and then you can see the alcove of a building and then a, another mm-hmm. window oh, yeah, I see the right. other half of the yeah. building. It's just this wonderful kind of, again, forgive my pretension, but this kind of evocation of, of urban living. Mm-hmm. And whilst we're talking about evocations of urban living, the shot following this, from the top of the Plaza Cinema, looking down at Inverness Street as the market traders are packing up. Yeah, sure. I just gives me shivers every time. It's it's great. It's not just that it's a beautiful shot and beautiful photographically. It's just that there is something about England, English towns and cities in the winter when things are packing up and everyone's heading home, you know, for tea and for warmth. Mm -hmm. It's just, and you can hear the echoing of the streets and everything. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. The use of music here, I have to flag up that there's a Robert Fripp track, which is instantly recognizable as Robert Fripp, if you know his stuff, because Robert Fripp and Brian Eno uh, developed this system of tape delays for recording. So you use a tape delay setup whilst you're recording, so you can hear what you've, it's basically like the looping systems that people use now, Mm -hmm. but it gradually fades away. Uh, Whatever you've recorded will come back to you, and then you can play in harmony on top of that and build these layers, and they'll kind of... So he, he developed it further into a system of digital delays called Frippatronics, and he made whole albums of <laughs> it. And they sound a bit like the track that's used here. So no, I went no, and no. had to look what it was. But the actual track here is called Urban Landscape, which is used oh, right. on the nose whenever you see an urban landscape in the movie. But it's from a Robert Fripp album called Exposure, which is when he was trying, I feel that he was trying to be a rock star again because he had been part of king crimson which was very 70s very long hair longs you know 10 minute tracks 15 minute tracks very very good prog rock with um exposure this album he was trying to reinvent himself with with you know a short haircut and a, a, a good suit okay, sure. and, and he was kind of like because he was already part of bowie's wider circle you know he plays guitar on heroes he was consciously marketing and trying to produce an album that would appeal to that rock circuit so you've got tight brisk songs that are quite angular and strange melodies and things the reason i think it's interesting and it's probably just a coincidence but because that was the point at which robert fripp was trying to reinvent or refocus himself with that album the scenery gets a haircut i think is quite interesting because he's kind of reflecting on changing styles and i think it's there's a thing when we talk about when we talk about art we don't like to talk about fashion we don't like to talk about people Artists or people or characters being aware of fashion. But I think this is actually a fashionable film. You know, f- 40 years on now, I think it's like a timelessly fashionable cultural artifact. But I think at the time, all the ideas in it were cool ideas. And I think. Robert is you know he's he's a bit isolated and everything but he is he has his own ideas about what he likes and what he likes is generally quite fashionable and he is going to get a more fashionable haircut I mean you described it as square but it is kind of like I don't
1: know I think he has a nice haircut before he goes in and then he he comes out with a kind of fuzzy microphone head which just
0: yeah but that's that was what was fashionable at the time but I do think that Robert is is concerned with what's fashionable and he's you know he's not concerned as in worried about it but he does like the fashionable things and I think this film does he's like He's a breast of fashion. And I think, you know, this this film also is
1: So you don't think it's window dressing, you think it's like actual again statements of intent, you know, to be trendy and to be kind of on trend. And...
0: Absolutely. These 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 are the the types of music that were cool at the time and you know, these this was the look that was cool at the time. Um you know, he's he's quite well dressed. He's he's got kind of austere but but well-cut clothes you know when you see the old black and white photos of joy division and the yeah, time yeah. you know they're, they're all quite well dressed and then when he goes to bristol he has you know a pretty nice leather jacket Yeah, it's
1: your classic isn't it
0: um i think i think he's a fashionable person he is and it kind of that does tie into the idea of, of reinvention again and forward motion and forward progress mm,
1: identity i guess if uh, you know you're on the cusp of an existential crisis you can at least define your know outward presentation
0: Mm. and speaking of people on on the the cusp of an existential crisis the next piece of music used is david bowie always crashing in the same car which is one Mm -hmm. of his key berlin works from the period where he was on actually on the verge of a total personal crisis and went to berlin to isolate himself from that and work on these Mm -hmm. records he's driving north at this point and we see the west way but we also see kind of dereliction and you know the, the old buildings which are coming down.
1: I love that though when you when you're in a, a period of like clear transition between past and future I, I love it I think I've mentioned it before but um Passport to Pimlico has this great kind of post-war bombed out look as well as this kind of redevelopment and you know investment in infrastructure that's happening at the same time as they're rebuilding the city i, I really love that and you get you get that here
0: yes yeah, as, as part of that transition and <clears throat> reinvention <laughs> we have shots of tower blocks and, and modernity coming in and you've got that amazing high wide shot that just keeps on yeah, giving it's really cool, you isn't? watch the car passing and then you hold and then you think, what are you holding for? And then you see kind of like the train on the overpass coming across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, that's where it, it just said in the in the edit, I'll just leave it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it.
0: And then it follows up with the the very, very famous trick shot of the uh, the car driving along and the plane taking off in the background. It was either extreme luck or masterful planning and timing to get that.
1: It's Heathrow, isn't it? It's going past Heathrow.
0: I like the way that the motorway shots are scored with craft work, but they use radioactivity I mean, on the nose thing you'd think would be autobahn, but um, radioactivity sounds better, and it's it sounds the the tone of it is more in keeping with the tone of the movie.
1: Yeah, he's driving really slowly though, which I find quite annoying. He gets overtaken twice, and then he peels off straight away onto the onto the services. It's like, come on, man, just like into the fast lane.
0: Beautiful snowy fields when he gets um, outside the city. Actually, the, the, the blurb for the forthcoming edition, Blu-ray edition, which we'll talk about later, makes much of this movie's kind of evocations of weather, which I thought were, were incidental. But when you do get them, they're, they're beautiful on they? snowy fields mm-hmm. and there's some shots later towards the end where he's driving through country lanes and there's kind of the morning mist yeah, coming yeah, off things nice. and drifting across the road and then we get the section with the squatter who's gone AWOL it's the kind of role that you'd kind of associate robert Carlyle with these days yeah sure again his his monologue of, of his experiences in ireland another reminder of this kind of background of, of violence and instability that's part of the mood of the film
1: i really like the monologue and the uh, the performance but i also like it that robert's trying to kind of empathize but he's also terrified in <laughs> the moment that the guy gets out to have a wee, just, like, leaves him, doesn't he? And the guy's like, yeah you bastard, you yeah bastard. And he just, yeah, ditches him in the... I thought that was going to come back and bite him on the ass at some point, but I'm glad it didn't. But, yeah, that, that guy's terrifying.
0: And then you get the really, really astonishing, iconic shot. You get the tri- twilight drive on the motorways, but then you get that incredible shot approaching the Grosvenor Hotel on that, that raised overpass. Yeah, yeah. Such an incredible shot and a location... And I, I was kind of praying that it would come back again in the film. And luckily it does, it does. even yeah, more yeah. strikingly. <laughs> and another of those things that I guess you just don't get anymore, you the the football results on the radio in the background Oh yeah. as he pulls into Bristol, which to me is the sound of mundane boredom. Yeah, yeah Saturday afternoons, yeah.
1: isn't it? Waiting for the football to finish so you can watch Batman. You've skipped Sting.
0: I have, We've talked about Sting. Oh, yeah, okay. I like the fact that when he um, gets to his, his brother's flat, or what turns out to be Cathy's flat, actually, he, um, he knows how to break in with a credit card, which is a yeah, slightly true. shady character touch. And we realise this is the flat we saw earlier. We have a quick look around it with him.
1: Yeah, I, I love this stuff because, you know, he's wearing, uh, I guess it's a cream trench coat. It's black and white, obviously. But yeah, he's wearing a trench coat. And he does look like a, your sort of classic cinema detective patrolling around an apartment looking for the clues and the detail you think it's gonna go somewhere completely different where it doesn't really you know it's just a strong image isn't it
0: i could never quite decode the conversation that he has with kathy um it's you know a mysterious death and she's talking about the police coming and searching and bringing sniffer dogs in whatever he was involved in and even you know, how he actually died is is always left quite murky, isn't it?
1: Yeah, just that there's a lot of suspicion around it and that he may have been involved with this stuff that we've been hearing on the radio about Mm. pornography and prostitution and drugs in Bristol and the kind of the west of England. We've given enough to assume he's part of that.
0: Robert goes to a local club that the kid recommends.
1: Platform One.
0: Platform One, just around the corner. I found it really unfair that the club is... Clearly, a bit of a crap club with a restrictive dress code that you dress code yeah. you wouldn't really want to go to anyway. Yeah. But they're playing "Lucky Number" by Lena Lovitch, which I guess is another one they got off the stiff yeah, yeah. roster from the time. I really like that song. Mm-hmm. I don't like the fact that it's played in a crap club, and then later on, it's, <laughs> it's playing in the pub as well, where he gets bullied by Kim Tailforth. Yeah, yeah. Which is another kind of crap venue. Still, each to his own. Uh, he meets Ingrid and Ingrid's friend at the station, who seem to have missed their train and gives them a lift back to the Grosvenor. I mean, this whole thing is is straight out of vendors, isn't it? It's a a, a troubled mother who you meet in transit, who's quite attractive and who you will not end up sleeping with (laughs) as much as you would like to. Um, And there's a kind of tentative connection between them that's not really going to go anywhere. The scene does end in this just that remarkable shot isolating them and framing them in separate windows in the room from outside as you drive past on the overpass as the
1: car goes past yeah on the flyover it's really nice i do find his performance quite stilted in that scene i think you know it's obviously he doesn't have a clue what they're talking about but when she's saying about losing her daughter to the uh the the father and he's he just says does he have a court order to keep her? It's like this really <laughs> weird line of dialogue. It's like, sorry, what? That's not how he would respond in that situation. Be like, oh my God, that's terrible. Like, how do you feel? Not, does he have a court order to keep her? It's like he can't quite join the words together.
0: Well, it's not surprising. There's not really much connection between them then. And then you follow up. We are back, I guess, at Cathy's flat, and he's watching a slideshow that he's found of his brother's slides. Yeah, I
1: love those old carousels.
0: And a lot of it is hardcore porn. I was I was surprised watching it and knowing how JG Ballard the scene was. I was surprised there wasn't like shots of weaponry in there too, and then yeah. buildings and, and car details. <laughs> but I guess knowing that Petit wasn't into Ballard at the time, it's just a coincidence and, and he finally comes face to face with his brother via the kind of slide being projected on the wall.
1: It's a nice shot, that, isn't it?
0: It's really nice. You do kind of feel the hands on your shoulder pushing you a bit, saying, look, this is a key image. This is a key image in the film. You should be mm. paying attention to this.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's a mirror image, isn't it? It's so stylized. It's He's got the same haircut and clothes as his brother and they're sort of facing each other. One is a 2D slide and the other one is a 3D human. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's nice, yeah.
0: Breakfast conversation with Cathy, there's um, references again to taking sides. Which, which is something that made me think this is something more to do with the IRA and political trouble than pornography, but I guess the two things could be interlinked. Yeah, mixed, it's quite they?
1: vague, isn't it? Sort of. Um, it must be just that he's deliberately being ambiguous. Mm. You know?
0: Is there anything to talk about the scene with um, Ingrid's relative? Is it her mother?
1: It's her ex-partner's auntie. It's a nice uh, kind of dilapidated art deco house, isn't it? And, she says...
0: Yeah, she came to England the same year this house was built.
1: Yeah, it's starting to kind of uh, crumble as well, as well as her sort of old views of the world.
0: Well, this does kind of like lead into the next section where Robert and Ingrid are just kind of hanging around in the seaside in kind of dilapidated seaside environments. and oh, they're at Burnbeck Pier, aren't they? And it's quite a bleak afternoon. But there's all these kind of bits of dead culture, you know, the dead seaside culture, and there's the old motor showroom as well. With the oh, just all those cars.
1: lovely old vehicles abandoned it seems like, in this showroom.
0: But it's all the things that get left behind in this forward momentum towards modernity.
1: Yeah, there's a nice thing where he's sat in a... Is it a Cadillac? Ingrid just says to him, you know, that that car doesn't suit you, which I thought was nice.
0: They kind of go their separate ways, don't they? She drives him home. Yeah. Beautifully lit, beautifully framed shots. I, I didn't feel as kind of, like, anticlimactic as you did, but it's, at this point, you know, there are no answers for him. There's no drama there is nothing left to happen really is there so his next shot is yeah hack-
1: but he's not looking for answers either you know when um, ingrid asks him about her brother he just says oh you know it, it wasn't that important and maybe it's going to rain you know like he's it, it's on equal standing his brother's mysterious death and what the weather's going to do
0: yeah it's true the feeling is that you know something will happen to him but it's there's no forward momentum i
1: think you know there's there's a few things in this like there's there's one shot i really love which is um him standing in like a really dirty old playground as the train goes past and the camera does this kind of long track back and we see him it's a bit telling but we see him sort of stepping over the, the tracks uh, as the camera kind of swoops around um and i thought that was the sort of last flourish of really great cinematography and then everything else seems kind of a little bit more point and shoot
0: isn't that appropriate to the situation he finds himself in there's nothing you know previously he was going somewhere he was heading to his brothers to find out what was going yeah, on yeah. and his life had some
1: a momentary purpose
0: now he doesn't have that he's just kind of it's
1: back to the drift isn't he
0: yeah and he's it, it has affected him he's kind of drinking pretty much non-stop he's he's actually drunk drunk when he's in that pub and then in the car wash later on he's kind of like with a very pointed cover version of Satisfaction playing. But then, you know, when he's when he ends up in the quarry, he's still drinking tins of Guinness throughout the day. So mm-hmm. it has kind of affected him in a way.
1: And littering. He's still littering. still
0: littering, tossing his tins. But I really, really liked the end of the movie where he kind of reaches the verge. His story goes as far as it can, and then he just kind of wanders away from it. Yeah, yeah. Puts on some theme music and wanders away. And ironically, you know, the, the track that he's listening to as he walks away is called Om, Sweet Om, Ohm Sweet Ohm, O-H-M. But, I mean you take the double meaning as home a sweet home which he has he does mm. not have how did you find it then this this having having lived under the shadow of this for so long how did you find actually well
1: yeah not even that really it was so peripheral but just it felt like you know like a, a box that i just needed to tick off at some point and i knew i'd get round to it so i was happy when you jumped on it and i think i was anticipating a more um, earth-shattering experience the first time you know just to be kind of really like blown away by something and it left me like i said before it left me um quite perplexed but what i liked about it the second time round was you know robert's character and his journey and how sort of understated all of that stuff was and getting time to uh, have a second pass on the visuals and oh, yeah i liked it more second time round is what i'm trying to say
0: for me it was just like putting on a comfortable pair of slippers and i think the reason is i have had you know a couple of decades of preparation getting into the same things that this film is into if i'd seen it when i was 20 when i was first getting into movies like a lot of it would have gone over my head and i would i think it just would have been a bit blank for me oh i see but there's this thing that you do like you know when i was young i think it's important to be into the stuff that's around there at the time so i was and then pick up on the other stuff that previous generations like people 10 years older or 20 years older have left behind you know so that's the point where mm-hmm. you start listening to older music you start listening to you for me it was you start listening to Eno, and you learn about that sort of thing and then you'd listen to craft work and more sort of german kraut rock type stuff you read your jg ballad when you're in your 20s not when you're in your teens you Mm -hmm. you pick up on all this canon stuff as you get a bit older and i think having done that for decades when i came to this finally it was just like (laughs) it's the
1: icing on your cultural cake
0: (laughs) it's just like walking into a room full of people you instantly get on with it's just like yeah okay okay, fine yeah this is great Mm -hmm. um so it's really it was a really odd but pleasant experience in that way i'm gonna watch it again later this year
1: yeah, I think there's, you mentioned there's a Blu-ray coming. Yeah, there's... A, a full restoration.
0: Because when I was watching this, it was from a DVD, and the DVD was clearly from a print, and the print, mm. like, hadn't been manufactured in, you know, with a great deal of care and attention, because there was post-scratches on the print, and there's some negative scratches here and there, but the print itself, you know, there's, it was fluctuating in dark scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it it, it wasn't brilliant, but they've just restored it from the camera negative 4K. So whatever comes out later this year is going to be a revelation, I think. Having said that, I was totally prepared for it um, and enjoyed it thoroughly as a result. I don't know how or who I could recommend this to unless I knew that they liked the things that fed into it. Do you think coming to it afresh, it would be?
1: I don't know, man. I feel like as a recommendation, I think you'd have to get somebody really young, basically, who's like teenage... And just see it as something totally different from, you know, I guess if you're the Netflix generation, this is going to seem like a really far out experimental movie. And I think it might just trigger, (laughs) you know, a different path, um, which is kind of one of the subtexts of the film, right? You know, to maybe look towards Europe and less about the American uh, influence or just somebody our age who's a kind of film uh, aficionado who's just missed it. I don't know, there's definitely something important about viewing it and getting just a a better perspective on British cinema for sure.